Okay. So we are still in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, if you want to jump ahead, we will be reading from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34. But uh, just a quick recap, let's set the scene. So last week we were at the end of, I think it was the end of chapter 3, and Jesus was in Capernaum, uh, which is a fishing city on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, and he was in a house there trying to eat a meal, being very uh, interrupted by a crowd of people who were keen for his attention. Now, I, um, I was actually showing Ari some pictures of Capernaum during the week. When, when I'm talking about a house gathering in Capernaum, they did not have big stately homes. This was probably like Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house or something, uh, or there is some suggestion Jesus may have had a house in Capernaum. Uh, it was his home for a season. But at this time, it just says he's in a house. Think very, very small. We're not talking about grand auditoriums. We're talking about a little room and kind of uh, all the people were crowding in around the house, kind of peering in through the window, trying to get in, trying to get Jesus' attention. And the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem and they were hassling him and saying, this man is possessed. They were giving him this label of, of being possessed because, uh, like last week we talked about, when we label something, we can treat it badly. We can dehumanize people with labels. So by saying Jesus is possessed of Beelzebul, that means that it kind of makes it easier for them to ultimately accuse him and have him crucified. Uh, but in the same way, his family says he's crazy because they're embarrassed by him. So they feel less embarrassed by him if, if he is crazy uh, than trying to make him more human, I guess. Uh, So the labeling thing is what we discussed last week. And you'll note, though, that the crowd was a consistent feature there. The crowd is trying to get in to his space. Uh, So then as we kick into uh, season four, wow, (laughs) season four and Mark, uh, as we kick into chapter four, Jesus is teaching again, uh, and the crowds are there. So the crowds are, uh, are super keen. And he is at, in uh, on the lake, I presume Lake Galilee, given the proximity of chapter 3 to chapter 4 uh, in, in the narrative. And there's so many people trying to hear him, he actually puts out into a little boat into the water so that he's kind of slightly in a space where they can't get to him. It's like crowd control. So he's uh, you know, a meter deep in the water in this boat and he's teaching from the boat. And he starts with a parable uh, that is a very well-known parable and that is the parable of the sower. Uh, and so in this particular parable, there is a farmer, he casts his seed and frankly, he's not a very good farmer because he tosses some of it on the path and he tosses some of it in the thorns, uh, but some of it lands in some good soil. Um, and in the midst of that, so in chapter four, verse nine, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, And then again, in in a few verses later, he says, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, speaking to his disciples, this is, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Uh, Again, uh, he tells another parable about a lamp on a stand, and he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. So there's this idea of teaching in parables. There's a whole block of them about the kingdom of God, parables about the kingdom of God here in chapter 4 of Mark. And that's where we pick up after we've had the parable of the sower and then some a little bit of an interlude. Now we're back into another kind of farming parable in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground 
night and day when he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, and though he does not know how, all by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, so much as they could understand, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So like it's making a big deal of this parable teaching process in this uh, chapter. So let's start right at the end there with this idea that he doesn't say anything to them in a parable. Uh, It's like, He's presenting, you know, here's this man of mystery. All his, his stories are all secret. No wonder the crowd keeps turning up. They're trying to figure out what he's saying. He's eloquent. He's creative. He's teaching in these incredible parables, and they are desperate to understand it. So that the idea or a parable or an allegory is a very common rabbinical technique. This is something uh, that happens all through the scripture. So they are hanging on his every word, but then it's not until he's in private that he fully explains what he's talking about to his disciples. The purpose of this is, as he's established, is that only the people who have ears to hear will hear. Only the people who are meant to get it will get it. Uh, He's kind of being cryptic here because he doesn't want to get himself into too much trouble, so he kind of says something but doesn't quite say it in a way that will get him caught out yet. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the reign of God is like. So when you think of kingdom, they think about it in in a uh, uh, a caesarean and vassal, like a king and people. So it is the area where the king is in control. It's where he has the reign and the kingdom uh, of his power and his influence. So the, the reign and the kingdom and the influence of God is like this. A man scatters a seed on the ground and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, the kind of surface story here, like often with these um, stories, there's more than one part. N.T. Wright describes parables like a chord, and he says there's all these different notes playing. Uh, And for some people, they'll only be able to discern one of those notes, but there are multiple notes playing in the midst of this chord. So the obvious story here is that the reign of God and the rule of God is secretly um, germinating under the earth, and it's going to break forth. The seed has been planted and the time of harvest is coming. That's the really obvious stuff that's going on here. Uh, But we remember that this particular parable is kind of a footnote. We've already had this other parable about sowing uh, at the beginning of this chapter, and now we have the second one. And in that first parable of the sower, it would be kind of reasonable for the audience to think, okay, what's important here is that I make sure that I am like the seed or the soil, the good soil. I don't want to be like the, the seed that landed on the path or in the, in the um, 
in the thistles and the thorns. I want to be the seed that is in the good soil. And there is a sense that it's the responsibility of the seed to be in the good soil and that it's in their control as to whether or not there is good growth. Whereas this kind of flips that narrative and it's like the seed and the farmer, none of them have any idea what's going on, but it's, it's happening. It's automatically happening. It's happening by itself under the earth. It is growing mysteriously. It's doing its thing. And the farmer doesn't even understand why that happens. So there is this opposite narrative. It's like if you were feeling proud and in control after the first story, you're now realizing that growth is entirely up to God. The growth of his kingdom, the growth of his people, the growth of his agenda, all of it. God is in control and it's not up to you to bear that. You just... You're like the farmer. You go to sleep at night. You get up in the morning. You don't understand how the kingdom is growing. But there are other chords that are being played here. There are other notes that are going on here. Uh, One of the most important points of this is that Jesus' original audience had a much greater grasp of Old Testament, or to them, just Scripture, than we do. The Hebrew Scriptures have all of these allegories and passages that they identify with. Remember, they weren't watching Netflix every night. Um, their stories, their biblical stories, were that was their dialogue. They, it was deeply part of their culture. So when Jesus tells this story and at the end of it, as soon as the grain is ripe, the farmer puts the sickle to the grain. It's like that is like secret language to them. It triggers something and they would immediately begin to think of um, Joel chapter 3. Which it's easy to go, oh, geez, that's a big jump, Jeff. You're going from, he says the word sickle and all of a sudden his whole audience is thinking. But but I'll, let me read to you this. So the whole of kind of Joel is culminates in this discussion about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord um, is what the Jewish nation, the people, they're looking forward to. This day of the Lord uh, is when uh, he comes, Yahweh comes, and he establishes his throne on earth. His kingdom of God gets established, like Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this. His kingdom gets established, and the bad guys get justice. So they look forward to the day of the Lord. But in a lot of the ancient prophetic writings... The prophets say you shouldn't be looking forward to the day of the Lord because you think it will be the day where you get everything you want, but really you're the ones who are going to get judged. So the 8th century prophets, and uh, so Amos and Micah in particular, they are like, this day is coming and it will be a day of woe and sorrow for you. So just before... Um, uh, uh, in Sorry, in Joel chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. So that's that kind of rabbinic jump. Um, it's, um, there's a, a word for mishra, midrash, where they're kind of playing on an Old Testament thing um, and telling a new story about it. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. And the chapter goes on to talk, and this is in Joel chapter 3, about the day of the Lord. So Jesus is saying the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God is like this and the judgment is coming. The kingdom of God is is going to be uh, good news for creation. It's going to be good news for the poor. It's going to be good news for those who mourn. It's going to be good, but it's not going to be good news for everyone. It is also a time of judgment when he is going to put the sickle to the harvest and his new age will begin. So Jesus is saying, right now, the old age that you exist in right now, you think that it's sure, but under the earth, the kingdom of God is growing. 
Under the earth, I am now planting these seeds and something is growing. And soon, and this is a, a prophetic insight into Jesus' own story, he is going to die and rise again. And a new age is going to rise with him. A new age of the kingdom of God and the old age will pass and the new will come. The word here uh, in the Greek when it says that uh, the farmer goes and he, uh, what does it say, he sleeps. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. Uh, the word here for gets up in the Greek is also used to say re to, to be resurrected or to be raised up from the dead. So there's an, uh, an illusion here for the Jewish uh, audience that that word is saying if the farmer goes to sleep or is resurrected. And when he's resurrected, all of a sudden, there is this sprouting of this new kingdom of God that is happening. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, obviously, Jesus is using a, a degree of hyperbole here um, because the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed in the world and it doesn't grow to be the largest plant in the world. But in rabbinic literature, they have like it's a, a commonly used theme that the mustard seed is the smallest in the world. So when he says that, it's it's a phrasing that they use frequently in their stories. So he's not like telling a lie here. He's just using a colloquialism, I think, or an idiom or whatever to describe something they're used to hearing. But what's important here is not the idea of um, the, the, the seed had to be the smallest or the plant had to be the biggest. It's the massive contrast between the two. Tiny little insignificant things, the things you can't even see, can grow into be the most of the significant things. So the hyperbole here is, is trying to highlight the significant contrast between the two. But again, the, the notes that are being played here are multiple. So the language of, uh, that Jesus is using harkens back to imagery from the Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel and Daniel. The idea of birds perching in a tree, the kingdom of God being like a tree and being, uh, or having all these birds perch in it, and all the nations come and they rest in the shade of this great tree is imagery that is very common to the Old Testament literature. Uh, I'll read for you in Ezekiel 17 uh, just to show that. In fact, it's interesting because Ezekiel 17, uh, the very first uh, two verses say this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Remember, I was saying that this is a common thing for them. It literally starts out the beginning of this teaching in Ezekiel to say, tell them an allegory and a parable. Uh, and then uh, in verse 22, after it's, it, it builds this parable, and then it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. And birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. So again, Jesus is drawing on this Old Testament allegory in his 
new teaching now. And it's something they would have easily understood, this idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, and in, in the case of the Old Testament picture, the day of the Lord as well, is about God reestablishing his rule and then uh, restoring his people. Uh, so even though for the Israelite nation, the day of the Lord, it, it, happened, it kept happening. And instead of them getting glory, they would get uh, invaded and they would then begin exiled. And, but they still had this idea that eventually God would come and he would establish a new kingdom. And in the line of David, he would raise up a new king from that line. And that Messiah would restore Israel and that all of the earth would be restored in that as well. And the, the evil would be judged and the good would be um, would be restored to all those who had been hard done by. So in this story, these little parables that Jesus is telling, telling he is identifying himself within the ancient tradition of, the, of being the Messiah, within that Old Testament story uh, that is coming uh, uh, to be made new. The kingdom of God that he is proclaiming uh, is the result of God's faithfulness and promises. That's what the core idea of this of this tree that would grow and everyone would be able to rest in its branches uh, in a, in, and, and in the shade of its branches is about God's faithfulness. The day of the Lord for the Jewish people was about saying God eventually will come and make things right. And as Christians, we hold to that as well. So instead of the day of the Lord being a, a day of wrath and fury on God's enemies, we still hold to this idea that the day of the Lord is when Christ comes and he makes all things new. And he restores the broken and he comforts those who are mourning. And it's just, it is a day uh, of good news for all the nations. It's a day when the blind are given sight and the and captives are set free. This is what Jesus is talking about. But there's one last little nugget in this story that I want to finish with. Uh, and that is that if Jesus is so clearly drawing from Ezekiel, why in his story does he talk about mustard seeds and bushes instead of saying a sprig of cedar growing into a massive cedar tree? Why doesn't he just use the same imagery? Uh, and, and the answer is, is that the mustard seed and the mustard plant are kind of an invasive weed. And, and what he's saying is, unlike the, the sprig of the tree that is this one thing, I'm going to get into everything. My kingdom is going to get into everything. It's going to every nook, every cranny, and it's going to grow, and you're not going to be able to stop it. It is invasive, and it's, it's going to break down all of the other things that are in the way. All of the power structures and institutions and, and brokenness in our society, the kingdom of God is going to get into every single last bit of it, and it is going to flourish and grow into an enormous, enormous plant that shelters all the nations, that is there for all the birds to perch in, that everyone will be able to take a hold of the fruit of. This is a good news picture. And Jesus is making it very clear that his kingdom will, will permeate all of society. There's no stopping it. The kingdom of God is going to uproot the kingdom of the world. It is going to overthrow all the corrupt systems and rulers. It's going to restore what has been broken and uh, release the oppressed and set the captives free and comfort the mourning. It is going to be a refuge for all people and all nations will be able to come and find peace and solace under his branches. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything.
Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be uh, people with open eyes and open ears and open hearts, that we would that we would have you explain everything to us, that we wouldn't be living in these deep mysteries uh, without being able to find answers. I pray that uh, for the seasons that have challenged, that we would, that you would comfort, that we would find an answer in your comfort, and the seasons of of little that we would find an answer in your provision. I pray when we have uh, doubts and fears and anxieties that we would find an answer in your peace. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us clearly. And I, I thank you that even though your parables uh, present a mysterious kingdom, um, that it is, it is clear that your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven and that it will get into every nook and cranny and that it will grow into something beautiful. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.